This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mins. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this case. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to a special edition of The Wigs, which doesn't involve me. Lucky you guys. On Sunday the 14th of March 2021, The Wigs did their first live show. They were invited to attend the New South Wales Public Defenders Conference. Good for them. And to record this show before approximately 500 conference delegates. The annual Public Defenders Conference is New South Wales' premier criminal law conference. And The Wigs were happy, certainly happy, to accept this invitation. Uh, But all joking aside, I was unable to attend for family commitment reasons. It was my son's birthday. But look, you're probably in for a treat as a result. But never fear, the show was hosted by legend leading journalist Natasha Robinson of the Australian newspaper. Thank you, Natasha, for stepping into my small shoes. And the topics were as follows. When does a citizen have to report a crime? And when can the question of criminal guilt be inquired into other than by a court? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this special episode of the popular Australian podcast, The Wigs. We're coming to you live streamed um, to delegates from the New South Wales Public Defenders Criminal Law Conference. I'm your host, Natasha Robinson, and I'm from the Australian newspaper. As Claire mentioned, I'm standing in for Jim, who's celebrating his son's birthday today. Um, As a brief background to the show, the Whigs formed in 2019 and quickly rose to the top of the legal and news commentary charts where it remains today. This is largely due to its pioneering legal commentary on contemporary issues, both in and out of the courtroom and on issues which are dominating the the media landscape. Whether it's providing commentary on the right to artistic expression by, by Western Sydney rap groups discussing complex international law issues or or the Pell trial and and Pell's subsequent acquittal or letting you in on behind the scenes of their fight in court for the Australian arm of the Black Lives Matter movement, the Whigs have carved an impressive voice on important issues of our day in the law. In June of 2020, the Whigs hit the number one spot on the podcast charts in the country. So it's safe to say after 22 episodes, they're on to a good thing. Felicity Graham, Emmanuel Kirkusherian, and the Deputy Mayor of Dubbo himself, <laughs> Mr. Stephen Lawrence. It's always got to get a mention. <laughs> it's great to be with you today. Great to be with you, Tash. Hey, Tash. Thanks, Tash. So let's dive right into our first topic. Um, the first topic we're going to discuss today relates to a question of when a citizen has a legal obligation to provide information or evidence to the police about a crime. This issue loomed large in the national discussion in recent weeks following the Brittany Higgins allegation and the suggestion from some that senior government ministers may have acted inappropriately in not drawing her allegations immediately to the Australian Federal Police who investigate crimes in the ACT. We'll obviously not touch on the Brittany Higgins matter, which is reported to be under police investigation, but it provides an interesting launching point for the discussion of what has been a vexed issue in New South Wales for many years, which is when a person should be required to report an alleged offence to the police and when it should be a crime not to tell police what you know about a particular crime. So Felicity, I'll turn to you first. When in New South Wales does a person have to report a crime to police or else face a potential criminal prosecution themselves? Tash, this 
comes down to primarily the provision in section 316 of the Crimes Act, which is an offence that has been created um, and of some long standing in New South Wales. The current provision criminalises conduct by an adult who knows or believes that a serious indictable offence has been committed by another person and knows or believes that they have information that might be of material assistance in either securing the apprehension of the offender or their prosecution or ultimate conviction for that offence. So and does then that mean that know or believe as an element means that the offence does not actually have to have been committed? It's enough that the person believes that it, it may have been? Yeah, so that's a really good point that arises particularly out of an amendment to the section because the section as it was originally enacted back in the 90s required proof also that a serious offence had been committed by another person. Mm. Under the current provision, um, that element is no longer a feature of the law um, and it just bears on this notion of another person's knowledge or belief that such a crime has been committed, although um, that doesn't need to involve proof that the person knows that the crime is of a quality that meets the definition of a serious indictable offence. And then the, the, the key part of the conduct is failing without reasonable excuse to bring the information uh, that you know to the attention of the police or other appropriate authority. So Flick, how does this sit with the right to silence? So the right to silence broadly encompasses quite a few different types of immunities. Perhaps the most um, familiar one will be the right against self-incrimination. Um, So, for example, someone who is a co-accused and knows that another person has committed an offence but which they were also involved in might be engaged in that scenario and that might give rise to the reasonable excuse um, provision. But more broadly, the law also recognises a general immunity that applies to all citizens that they should be free... Um, They shouldn't be threatened with pain of punishment um, to say anything. Uh, This law clearly abrogates that more general um, immunity. And in terms of the way that self-incrimination is applied, I think it really comes in through the reasonable excuse carve-out. Emmanuel, do you think the, the, the average person in the street really knows that this law exists and if you know, they do come into possession of some information, would they really know that they're obligated to report? I think there are clear lines that are drawn. So, for example, if if someone comes and hides the guns after a murder at your place, then I think most people would understand that there's some duty to report that. But the interesting thing about, (coughs) excuse me, the breadth of this section is that, on the face of it at least, if you know that somebody has stolen a lollipop from a shop, you might be guilty of this offence. And I think there are many scenarios involving people where they don't want to dob in their family, or perhaps they're scared of the person who's done it. There's many sorts of reasons why people uh, are not, uh, would find themselves breaching this law without really being cognizant of the fact that they're doing it. Well, certainly that not being front and centre in their thinking. It's probably important to talk about some of the, uh, the exceptions in the actual 316. 
Is yeah. in terms because there's exceptions about DV and about sex. Is that right, Flicky? Yeah. So there's a specific exception that was introduced in 2020 mm. relating to a scenario where a victim or alleged victim is an adult. Um, the offence concerned is either of a sexual offence or domestic violence nature, where the person who is the holder of information that might assist the police believes on reasonable grounds that the alleged victim doesn't wish for the information to be mm. provided to the authorities, then that's deemed to be a reasonable excuse for the purposes of that um, exception to the offence. Mm. The other thing that might be worth um, mentioning is also particular provision relating to certain types of employment and people who obtain information through the course of being either a doctor, um, a member of the clergy, a lawyer, um, in some circumstances a school teacher or principal, psychologists and so on. The real issue there is in terms of how proceedings can be brought against such a person. Yeah, there's not a complete immunity for no, not lawyers, teachers, doctors, etc. No, it's mm. just that before a prosecution could be brought, noting that this offence can be prosecuted either summarily or on indictment, the DPP has to give the go-ahead. Mm. So that if a person comes to me and says, hey, Emmanuel, should I go to the police and admit that I just murdered somebody, I would be guilty of this offence if I did not tell the police that, uh, notwithstanding their right to... for their legal professional privilege, um, but I would be guilty of it. And the only thing that prevents me from being charged is mm. the director standing in the way. I mean, you would ultimately, almost inevitably, you would think have a reasonable excuse. Mm. But that's something that you would have to raise, obviously. Mm. Mm. And Stephen, what happens if a victim, say there's a sexual assault and the victim <clears throat> doesn't want the matter to be reported to police? So there's the specific exception um, in one of the subsections that applies if the person is an adult so the complainant um, is an adult and the person to whom uh, the complaint is made or the person who becomes aware of it um, has a reasonable basis to believe <coughs> that uh, the complainant does not wish uh, to proceed with the matter, then that is deemed to be a reasonable excuse. Okay. So that's basically the law in New South Wales as it would seem to apply to that broad issue that I guess um, is raised by the Brittany Higgins case, which um, obviously occurred in Canberra. But What about this exclusion for corporate liability? Yeah, you were talking about that, Manny, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. Weird. I mean, I, I think I suspect... So the, the Act uses the term adult, so if you've got to be an adult to be guilty of the offence. And it previously didn't use that, did That's it? Right, no, That's right. That was an amendment made in 2018. Mm, yeah. So, so it was just a person. In other words, children could be prosecuted, yeah. companies could be prosecuted. Yeah, and so now, and of course, person includes within it the corporate person, but the word adult doesn't include that. So I suspect. So what about if the corporations turned eighteen? Well, yeah, that's. <laughs> I've actually thought about that for advice, but um, it's an interesting issue. It, I think by mistake they've excluded corporate liability for this offence, and it's really interesting when you think about knowledge that corporations often have in house that they only they have, and they would. You might expect, say, banks to report fraud and things like that. And they don't report fraud often. Yeah. Because yeah. it's um, bad for their reputation. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's, the, it's interesting that there's sort of this parallel stream that ASIC and the ACCC run where they give corporate offenders, in effect, the right to put a marker in and get 
immunity for dobbing in themselves and other people. So they get this whole other regime for a whole heap of offences they commit, whereas your average punter is sort of stuck in this regime where they might be threatened with this if they don't talk. And Flick, there's also um, a specific um, wording in the law that you need to know or believe that a crime has been committed, but does that belief have to have a rational foundation? Not on the face of this law. I mean, this provision has some real problems with it. And in fact, the primary offence of concealing an offence of another person, the Law Reform Commission has recommended should be repealed altogether. Um, but it seems on the face of it that you could, for example, believe that someone has committed an offence because they've made some kind of confession to you. Um, or you could believe that because of some other information, that belief could be fanciful um, or not well-founded, but it would engage that provision, prima facie. Um, perhaps there might be some issue around whether reasonable excuse has some work to do in that space, but combined with the fact that the offence now no longer requires proof of an actual offence having been committed. There are some real concerns in terms of the breadth of this, this provision. Another sort of important issue that's canvassed in that law reform report is that when they did their call for submissions, they got submissions from the police and ICAC and different bodies. And certainly ICAC made a submission to the effect that it was impeding their work because they were presumably dealing with lawyers who were representing people who were being asked to assist ICAC. And the lawyers were telling ICAC, look, it's difficult for my client to assist you because my client may have committed an offence under section 316 because to date he's not assisted you. And in those circumstances, if they start to assist you, then they'll be guilty and admitting to an offence contrary to section 316. So it's this sort of irony in a policy sense that the casting of the obligation to report, which supposedly is meant to assist the police and assist investigators, has got this real tendency to work contrary because it can disincentivise it in the mm. strongest way possible. So the policy objective is really not met in terms of encouraging people to report to police so that they can then investigate and prosecute. Yeah. Mm. Although the police use it the other way, in that they say, unless you tell us... Yeah. This fact will push you. And we will funny, charge you. There's some funny stuff in the in uh, the same law reform report where New South Wales Police made a submission to the commission saying, "Look, we need to keep this law because we use it as a way to threaten or cajole certain people to cooperate, and it's really important in our investigatory process." And the commission basically said, "Well, we regard that um, as grossly improper, mm. and we think that any such evidence might be excluded under Section 138 of the Evidence Act anyway." Mm. Um, but certainly quite a sort of honest and upfront submission <laughs> from the police which is an all those years ago. Which I should say is an important statement to fish out of that report. What, what year was that report? Was it 99? It's, it's yeah. worth fishing that report out. If you ever do have a, a witness who's been threatened in that way, you might try and exclude the evidence and show the judge that report and their view. Because they say quite strongly their view is that it's, it's not admissible. Mm. So... Emmanuel, what's the legal history of criminalising the omission of not speaking to police? So the, the current section, 316, is part of Part 7 of the Crimes Act, which was sort of in, I think, 1999 that came in, in the course of that period of New South Wales where we had things like ICAT created and then these laws coming in, which were kind of like 
really changing, this was part of a suite of changes dealing with public justice offences um, like hinder, pervert and so on. There was a dog's breakfast of common law and um, statutory offences and this is one of those that came in. But it replaced the old common law offences and I love the names of the common law offences. Um, they were misdemeanours of misprisoning of a felon and compounding a felony. Um, misprisoning of a felon is... Sounds bad, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> we put it in the wrong prison. <laughs> but um, effectively, that's the failing to disclose. So the, the elements are failing to disclose that, sorry, you have knowledge that a felony has been committed and a felony is a serious indictable offence, for lack of a better description. Failing to disclose that knowledge to a responsible, um, for a person responsible for the preservation of the peace within a reasonable time and having had a reasonable opportunity to do so. So that's essentially what 316 is with obvious differences. Um, and compounding a felony is, this, is we actually cut a deal with someone for some consideration either not to prosecute or to impede prosecution, which is now subsection 2, I think, of 316. That's right. Um, so if you pay me, I won't report you. Yeah, yep. and it's interesting because under that, if you say, look, if you return my dog... I won't report you yeah, yeah. to the police for stealing it. That is, is that potentially an offence? I think it may well yeah. be. Um, so it's not an offence under subsection 2 merely to solicit, accept or agree to accept the making good of loss or injury caused by an offence or the making of reasonable compensation for that loss or injury. Right. right. That's in subsection 3. But it remains a bad idea. I, I think it remains improper for lawyers to threaten that kind of thing. That is to say we will not proceed with criminal proceedings in a letter if you, if you cut a deal. I'm sure that remains the yeah, case. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, so it, there has been these sorts of laws since time immemorial, since the common law, but there's a bit, it goes against sort of the long-standing common law policy aversion to both enforcing speech but also to criminalising omissions. So it's one thing to prosecute someone for cutting a deal not to prosecute. It's another thing just to prosecute someone for failing to act. Mm. Mm. And the Law Reform Commission really drew that distinction. They said the offence that's now effectively subsection 2, that should remain, that should be the only offence where you seek some advantage by agreeing or actually not reporting someone mm. or reporting information to the police, but that principal offence uh, should be repealed. Stephen, yeah. Do you think there's an issue that there's a really low threshold for the types of crimes that you're expected to report? Yeah, I do. I mean, the definition of serious indictable offence is anything carrying a maximum penalty of five years or more, which might sound serious, I suppose, to the average person. But in terms of the, you know, the breadth of the criminal law, that's virtually including everything apart from, I suppose, things like common assault, traffic matters. I mean, five years is a pretty general starting point, I think, for lots of offences. We should mention that for traffic-type <coughs> offending, there's another regime in relation to the requirement to provide information to police about the driver yeah. mm. and their identity, and that failing to do that can also be a criminal offence. Yeah, so yeah, there's sort of a right. separate regime dealt with summarily in relation yeah. to that type of conduct. Yeah. But, yeah, certainly... Minor property damage, yeah. larceny, all so, those things are going to be caught. Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly wide, but, I mean, interestingly, there's a, about 20 cases a year, and that's talked about in the Law Reform, Law Reform Commission report, but I looked on jurors last night, and that's still, still pretty constant. It's about 20 or so a year. 
So really, if you think about how, how often the offence must be committed in the community, which I would have mm. thought would be sort of every day of the week all the time, it's hardly ever prosecuted, which again, I mean, that's not unusual. It doesn't mean that an offence shouldn't exist, but I think from a policy point of view, it tends to suggest that there's at least a tendency for the offence to be arbitrary, either in its application or its breadth or something like that. I think, it's, I think it's worth noting that there's always accessory after the fact as well. Yeah. For most of the, for, particularly for serious offences, it's charged murder is the most often, the, the one that you most often see. So in terms of, and that governs people who have some criminal involvement in what's going on. And so this is ancillary to that. This is a step mm. further removed from that. And whether or not you need it, I mean, I don't know that you do need it. Yeah. I want to turn to the issues in the Brittany Higgins controversy now. Um, in the aftermath of that case, the AFP police commissioner released a letter um, that said in part, um, members and senators, it was addressed um, to parliamentarians, um, so members and senators and their parliamentary staff and electorate officers may receive complaints or allegations of sexual assault or other criminal conduct from a variety of sources, including victims themselves. Such matters should be reported to the AFP without delay, taking into account the rights and privacy of the victims, uh, of the victim rather, and irrespective of the jurisdiction in which the alleged conduct has occurred. The AFP commissioner said to parliamentarians, I cannot state strongly enough the importance of timely referrals of allegations of criminal conduct. Failure to report alleged criminal behaviour in this matter or choosing to communicate or disseminate allegations via other means, such as through the media or third parties, risks prejudicing any subsequent police investigation. He warned any delay in reporting criminal conduct can result in the loss of key evidence, continuation of the offending and or reoffending by the alleged perpetrator. Um, Stephen, was this a helpful letter and does it provide, do you think, useful guidance for people who receive such reports? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's helpful in terms of ensuring that MPs understand that not reporting things might have deleterious consequences in terms of, you know, evidence um, and reoffending and so forth. But I thought it was quite curious in its drafting in the sense that you know, on one level, it contains many statements of the obvious, which I don't think would be that surprising or illuminating uh, to an MP that read it. I think it was directed to the Prime Minister, this letter. But it's got those few key words in it along the lines of, you should report immediately, of course, taking into account the rights, interest and views of the victim. Now, that sort of begs the whole question because the reason this is such a complicated area and this was discussed in the aftermath of the Brittany Higgins issue in terms of certain people saying that it should have been reported immediately, other people saying that it was a bit more complicated than that. But it highlights that issue which in crimes generally but in particular um, in matters of this sort, it's often a really complicated question, not least in the victim's mind, about whether they want proceedings. So to state this sort of categorical position and then add the small tail subject to the victim's views, I think is rather to beg the, the entire question. Um, and Kate Jenkins, um, who I think is a sex discrimination commissioner, she was interviewed on Q&A after this and was fairly critical, I thought, of the letter in terms of saying that she was more supportive of a victim-centric approach, an approach that um, is driven by the victim 
rather than there being this tone of a sort of mandatory reporting sort of aspect to it. And it's also interesting because in in the ACT statutory context, flick this, this con conceal an offence actually isn't a criminal offence, is it? That's right. There's no equivalent in the statute to section 316 in the ACT and that sort of raises that issue, I think, in terms of whether or not this type of guidance is that useful. Yeah, which, which is, you know, which is why police commissioners shouldn't be giving legal advice to anybody, let alone prime ministers. Um, seemingly unprompted. Well, who knows whether Same. it was prompted or not. Seemingly <coughs> unprompted. But the letter itself was disturbing in that it began, I write to advise the manner in which allegations of criminal conduct must be referred to the AFP. And I don't think that it's appropriate for a commissioner of police to tell the prime minister of a country how anything must occur, I think. If, you, if the Prime Minister wants legal advice, you can get that from the Solicitor General. It's just really weird um, to have this political document mm. issue. Could I raise one other scenario in this context, bearing in mind that this type of offence applies to family members, friends, a whole range of people that might be related to either a victim um, or an alleged offender. Just assuming for a moment that a parent or an adult child of an alleged offender comes into some information, ultimately at a trial they may well have um, an entitlement to be excused from giving any evidence against um, their family mm. member because yeah, of section, section 18 of the Evidence Act. But under section 316 the prime facie position is that they're compelled to give that information to the police. What do you think about how either that law might operate in that situation, particularly whether the reasonable excuse provision would ordinarily be engaged or never engaged? Is it going to depend on how serious the offence is that's alleged? It seems like a pretty unsatisfactory mm. situation. So it goes in to make her unavailable, 65. Well, that's another that option, given, isn't it? I would have thought. If yeah, the information so. is given and the witness is excused. I think that's still a bit of a live issue in the law in terms of this interaction between 18 and 65. Don't know if it's been completely settled. I mm. know there was sort of some single judge decisions on it. Manny, but, yeah, interesting. we've got um, a, question, a few questions from people tuning into the live stream. Um, does legal privilege stop lawyers having to disclose client instructions or other offences? So that's the, that, that I don't, I think that the DPP would never charge in those circumstances. I think that would likely be found by a tribunal of fact, be it a jury or um, a magistrate, to be a reasonable excuse. So I didn't do it because my professional obligations as a barrister were to keep my mouth shut. So the short answer is almost certainly not. But prima facie, that is to say before you move to not having a reasonable excuse, you are theoretically at least guilty. Mm. And this is something that comes up for other professionals, doctors, and I think there was uh, an issue um, in the wake of, um, of, of, the, of the Pell case and the subsequent controversies around, um, you know, um, you know, priests and you say if somebody confesses to child sexual assault or a crime in the in the confession box um, would that be a reasonable excuse that I'm a priest and I don't have to pass this on yeah I mean so th 
theoretically that's a question of fact mm. so it's it, it may it may well be given on the circumstances i know that for psychologists and psychiatrists they have a complex ethical scheme that kind of sets out the when they when they're talking to a client if they think they're going to go and commit a crime straight away they may have to report it in other circumstances they don't and so on and so it's kind of left for them to juggle mm. one I mean, I yeah sorry, Manny. no I, I think one, one it speaks that these things will be done reasonably and there's nothing to suggest they haven't been mm. so mm. far um, Stephen, we've got another a question. Um, if a client tells me that they have been collecting Centrelink benefits, for instance, as, and as, uh, for a single parent while living with their partner, or the estranged partner tells me that the other partner has been defrauding Centrelink, am I obligated to report the fraud? So I would have thought that even if you come into information in the course of a privileged conversation, even where that information is not part of the case and not sort of central or sort of related to why you're taking instructions. I would have thought that reasonable excuse, or certainly I would think that it should be, should be broad enough to encompass the fact that you've received that information in a particular context where it would be to act inconsistently with the nature of the relationship for you to start reporting to the police every time that a client makes an unsolicited and irrelevant admission. That would be my view. Because really but rests on that fiduciary relationship existing. being protected yeah. and existing. Yeah, but ultimately it's, it's, you have to be careful in, in terms of giving that sort of advice because ultimately the question of what is a reasonable excuse is a matter for a magistrate and... You know, you can't preempt it, which I think is a signal to the unacceptable breadth um, of this offence, probably. Mm-hmm. And maybe some um, drafting. Do you think that it would have been possible in the drafting process to to deal with these kinds of issues, or is that encompassed by the reasonable excuse language? I mean, they cast it broadly. I think in this unqualified way, or relatively unqualified way because this offence speaks to so many different situations that it's difficult to start codifying what is a reasonable excuse because, you know, how long is a piece of string? Okay, um, we might move on to topic two now. Um, we want to look now at administrative inquiries or non-judicial inquiries into criminal offending and how that sits with the rule of law. These issues arise where, as in the Christian Porter case that's um, currently causing so much controversy, where it seems as if there won't ever be a police investigation or court proceedings for an offence or where court proceedings may have already been carried out and finalised. Um, I think the facts are fairly notorious in the Christian Porter case. It was alleged um, by a now deceased woman that in 1988 she was raped by the Attorney General. Um, Emmanuel, can you give us some kind of idea when these administrative inquiries into criminal allegations occur? Yeah, um, the weeds always give me the easy ones. Um, <laughs> so, um, so obviously there are the sort of familiar situations where you see uh, administrative inquiries, so working with children checks, um, in professional regulations, workplace health and safety and so on, um, you can be, you can find yourself in certain circumstances, in many circumstances, and it's really grown in the 20 years that I've been practising, um, where even if you are acquitted of a criminal offence, 
uh, particularly of a sexual nature, but otherwise you can find yourself uh, in front of some sort of administrative body, some sort of tribunal, something like that, um, having the, whether or not you engaged in that conduct and what your response to the allegation was being determined by some sort of administrative tribunal. And that's um, even if you've been acquitted, right? Yes, yeah, so they yeah. sometimes, yeah. sometimes effectively controvert the acquittal. Yeah. Yes, and um, it's interesting because we, we speak, we've, I think it's important to sort of, there's a difference between an administrative inquiry where the person is sitting as an inquisitor, the person who's making the decision is, make, is also the person conducting the inquiry, and um, a lot of these bodies will not have that. They will rather have two parties. You'll have, say, the Bar Association putting on the things that you've done wrong in front of a tribunal that will then hear from you and make a decision about what you've done. Um, so that's really what, what we're talking about. I think... Um, I don't know that there are any in existence that... Well, with the exception of, say, ICAC um, and standing royal commissions like that and royal commissions generally... Um, and usually they involve judicial officers um, or ex-judicial officers. They're really the only ones that look into elected representatives and even then only extraordinary, mm. extraordinarily. So we've heard a lot of talk about how these types of non-judicial or administrative inquiries sit with the rule of law. The Prime Minister has made much of the fact that, you know, everyone's subject to the rule of law. We can't have a sort of secondary process where, um, you know, if a, if a criminal prosecution can't go ahead, we have some other process. Um, are these types of non-judicial administrative inquiries contrary to the rule of law in your view, Flick? So, when we're talking about these types of inquiries, like whether a person should be entitled to a working with children check or whether they should be permitted to work in, as a member of a particular profession, as a doctor or a lawyer, or inquiries that might happen in a workplace context from a health and safety perspective or even royal commissions, these types of non-judicial inquiries or administrative inquiries, they're a common feature of our system. They're an aspect mm -hmm. of the rule of law. And where a particular type of inquiry is engaged, um, they can apply to everyone in, in an equal way. So anyone who wants to um, have a working with children check might have to go through that process. Uh, similarly, any barrister or solicitor um, might mm. face professional regulation in that way. Um, these types of inquiries, though, they have pretty distinct policy objectives. Mm. So, what is this person's risk to children and should they be allowed to work in an environment where they're going to come regularly in contact with children? Um, ca how can we keep this workplace safe for all of the workers that are in it? Um, or regulating particular professions where there's an aspect of community standards involved in terms of not just unleashing unfit people um, in quite trusted positions like doctors or lawyers onto members of the public. Um, similarly, a coronial inquiry is a type of um, commonplace inquiry that might bear upon issues of whether a criminal offence has <coughs> occurred, although as soon as a coroner um, forms an opinion that the evidence in the case might go before a jury and might satisfy them beyond reasonable doubt that a person has committed an offence that's related to 
causally related to the death, then they need to suspend the inquiry and send it to the DPP. Um, and that's got a policy objective too, doesn't it? In the sense that you inquire into death in order to protect the living and look into systemic Indeed. issues that's and so forth. Quite different to the Porter scenario, because I guess the question that's raised, you know, a lot of the calls for an administrative inquiry in his case have got to do with the fact that he's the Attorney General, that's a particular position where he's dealing with matters of um, policy around, um, for instance, sexual assault. Um, do you think there is a call for you know, uh, is, is that a, a valid policy objective that we need the first law officer of the nation to be beyond reproach? Mm. There doesn't seem to be any real precedent that we can look to in terms of that scenario. And we've talked um, in our earlier mm. discussions about some of the other types of scenarios that might be examples that we can think about, like the inquiry into Brett Kavanaugh's um, conduct uh, also as a young person in relation to sexual misconduct and his whether he was an appropriate person to be a Supreme Court judge in the US. Um, Which is similar in terms of the allegations but different in terms of the forum of the inquiry because that was an already established process, right? That's right. If you so want to be a judge, you go through confirmation. The, inquiry, yeah. the confirmation process for a justice in the Supreme Court, that's a well established mm. process. I mean, arguably a misuse of that process, but a well established process. Sure. Yeah. But there doesn't seem to be, apart from the ballot box and the Prime Minister's call in terms of what he decides in terms of who his Cabinet Ministers are and what he thinks the public will tolerate in making that decision. There's not really, I think, a precedent for this type of inquiry. What do you think, Manny? Yeah, I think there's established processes for answering what is fundamentally a political question, which is, is a person fit and proper? to hold a ministerial office. And that is, the, in the first instance, the Prime Minister decides. Mm -hmm. If there's some doubt about or some concern about his decision or her decision, his decision in this case, then there are two Houses of Parliament who can conduct an inquiry. Mm -hmm. um, they are- A vote of no confidence. Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. Or they can just, they don't even have to conduct an inquiry. They can vote no confidence. Uh, and then there would be an expectation that the Minister would resign. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, I imagine, would happen. Uh, and then if that doesn't happen or if there's some other, you know, if, if, if they decide not to have that investigation, then you go to the ballot box. Mm. So there's this entire structure in place that provides, in part, if necessary, to have an inquiry by a body that has more power than anyone mm. else to conduct an inquiry. And also capacity to actually engage in fact-finding. Yeah. Because these inquiries that we've mentioned, these other types of processes... I mean, they usually involve a collection and presentation of evidence that permits some kind of fact-finding. And in a scenario where, say, someone's applying for a working with children check mm -hmm. and the tribunal can't be satisfied that there's been some adverse conduct by the person long time ago, well, presumably that would mean that they would then succeed on their application for a working with children check. Well, I guess this raises the other issue, Stephen. Um, if you accept that it is appropriate in this scenario to have an administrative inquiry into the fitness of Christian Porter, do you think that, you know, what, what are the issues that are raised by the fact that, I mean, how would it be possible to make a finding of fact in this scenario where you don't have a live witness who you can question? Um, and there's all sorts of fairness issues raised by the fact that the complainant yeah. isn't alive. 
Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And there was a really good piece by Steve Boland in the, in the AFR this week where I think he really got to the heart of it in terms of, you know, putting forward this argument that, in truth, this allegation is incapable of proof. And I think many criminal lawyers would share that view. I mean, we don't know everything um, about the dossier that exists, but certainly what's in the public domain, I would tend to the view that it's incapable of proof. And, you know, this broader issue about is there a policy objective in this sort of inquiry, you know, the most kind of cogent argument I've seen is that there's a need to maintain public confidence. Now, I find that highly patronising of uh, the Australian community. Um, I don't think... I mean, it's a nebulous idea at best. It's impossible to measure. It's completely intangible. A lot of people would say there's not a lot of confidence in the Australian community in politicians anyway. Uh, but this idea that the Australian community is incapable of having confidence in political leadership when they hear uh, that there's been an allegation, uh, there was an allegation a long time ago, um, the complainant is deceased, the allegation was apparently withdrawn uh, prior to her suicide. Uh, I mean, in my view, the Australian community is well and capable of understanding that in those circumstances it's incapable of proof and that the link between these allegations and this idea of being fit and proper for that role is extremely tenuous and perhaps specious. Mm. You know, yeah, I, I think that it, having a lawyer make a finding of fact that it is on balance more likely than less likely that Mr Porter did engage in this conduct, well, that, in my view... And where do you go from there? So the law is... Section 44 of the Constitution, um, he, if he had committed this offence and gone to jail for it, he could still be in Parliament today, right? And it and would more be, of, be I mean, illegal to talk about it. It would be illegal to talk about it, right? So if you take a legal perspective from a lawyer, so a lawyer says, yep, I think he did it on balance, uh, but my answer to the question is under the Constitution, he's a fit and proper person. Mm. That's going to be wholly unsatisfactory. And that really brings home that the question is a political question, and my fear is that having what is effectively a political inquiry cloaked in the language and style of the law has the danger of bringing the legal profession into disrepute. Can you imagine, as a, I don't know, there may, there may be people out there listening who've conducted inquiries. Can you imagine conducting an inquiry like this and saying, look, I think he should stay in Parliament and etc. Getting into all of these political issues. It's a horrible place for the law, for lawyers to be. It's and not I'm, the law. Uh, yeah, it's not the law. And I'm reminded of Cable and, and, you know, the idea that a Supreme Court judge is to say, well, you, Mr Cable, are going to jail because of these facts. Um, it, it's not really where lawyers should be getting into. The, the issue, though, of whether there should be this type of administrative inquiry has really divided the legal profession, though. Why do you think people are so divided on, on one side or the other? Um, my take on it is that there is a genuine problem in our society with how we deal with survivors of sexual assault and things that don't quite rise to sexual assault, so lesser species of um, sexual abuse and even um, aspects of relationships between all genders and all... Um, it's, it's so hard to even formulate the right questions in this area and we as a society... I think really need to focus inquiries into that kind of thing. What, what are we doing in this area to make sure that these difficult values are being balanced? I mean, there are people 
who I respect deeply, who have railed against me for suggesting that there shouldn't be an administrative inquiry. And I disagree with them fundamentally, but on the other hand, I respect them so much to know that I think the difference here is that a values-based difference, and we need to figure out how to bring those values together. Mm. It was interesting to hear, I heard the Commissioner of Police from New South Wales on the radio the other day saying that even if the complainant were alive, New South Wales Police would not proceed with a case and that the real issue here is about the failings in the system to properly um, respect and, and deal with victims and kind of deal with their issues and that we shouldn't be concerned with I'm paraphrasing the Commission here, but we shouldn't be concerned with some inquiry into Christian Porter, but we should really be focusing on the systemic failings in relation to how victims are treated. And so did he say why he thought that if she was alive it wouldn't have led to a prosecution? Look, I just I heard... Because I a surprising, surprising proposition. Really. Yeah, I just heard a, a clip on the radio, mm. but he didn't go into an explanation in that clip. Do yeah. you think it's relevant that she actually withdrew her complaint before she died? In terms of any potential fact-finding? Yeah, in terms of whether... I mean, does that have any relevance to this question of whether there should now be an administrative inquiry? I think probably the most determinative factor in terms of whether an inquiry is appropriate or not is that she's deceased. Because I think if she were alive and she had withdrawn the... Um, complaint or withdrawn her willingness to participate in a police investigation, that wouldn't necessarily be determinative. I mean, people who have experienced crime for a whole range of reasons either choose from the get-go or later not to participate in that process. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they haven't experienced um, victimhood and, and been offended against. So, but that all of that just cannot be teased out in the context of the facts of this case. But it's very very equivocal conduct, obviously. And it occurred, as I understand it, the day before she committed suicide. So you, you would obviously infer that she was in acute psychological distress. So I don't think it would be a reasonable interpretation to say that it necessarily means that she was abandoning the truth of the allegation. Mm. I mean, I'm not sure how this inquiry, proposed inquiry, would ever mm. investigate these things. It certainly could mean that, but it seems highly amb ambiguous to me. Manny, you mentioned, sorry Tash, to cut you off, Manny, you mentioned that it would be illegal to publish details in relation to these mm. allegations if he had been the subject of criminal proceedings. Yeah. Um, I think we should just tease that out a bit more because it's quite interesting to yeah, consider... That's on the basis of him being a juvenile. That's right. So yeah. there's a provision in New South Wales in Section 15, Capital A of the Children Criminal Proceedings Act. It says that the name of a person and, and identifying details about the person must not be published or broadcast in a way that connects that person with criminal proceedings if they were a child, either as a victim, as an accused, even if they're no longer a child, um, as at the time of the publishing or broadcast. And yeah, I think it's just quite interesting to do that thought experiment in terms of the way that this has all unfolded in the media because mm -hmm. if there had been any kind of charge which resulted either in acquittal or proceedings being withdrawn or even if there had been a conviction or a finding of guilt rather, um, none of it would have been able to be published. I mean, which is almost a legislative choice that it shouldn't be public, shouldn't be fodder 
for public conversation about whether he's a fit and proper person because say he'd been charged at the time um, and the charge is withdrawn, it would be illegal to discuss, which strongly suggests, I think, a legislative choice that it's not a matter for public discussion. Mm. I mean, so I don't know how that factors into the argument that there should be an administrative inquiry into him, him being fit and proper, except to say that there certainly could not have been if he'd been charged and not even convicted. Yeah, I think about, I think about the young people that I've acted for who've been charged with quite serious things and some of whom have been acquitted. I would hate to think that they can't go on to pursue their dreams because of something that was alleged against them when they were a child. And the law goes so far as to say that even if you are guilty of some offences, in many circumstances you ought not be convicted so that you can escape the opprobrium of your crime and go on to have a good life. And it's a criminal offence to publish or broadcast. It's not just some sort of prohibition generally, but you can go to jail for publishing this kind of information about a child or, or someone who was a child. Mm. And um, this whole idea of the, the rule of law um, being the determinative factor in, in whether to hold an inquiry, would you say, Manny, that an inquiry, if it were to take place, would be contrary to the rule of law? I think that an inquiry conducted by Parliament would be completely consistent with the rule of law. Um, and I think, I mean, well, my own view is that there's much merit in that to kind of diffuse with what's going on in the community. Whether or not Parliament wants to take up that mantle, I don't know. I suspect there are strong reasons why they don't want to take up that mantle. But I don't know otherwise what an there, there is no body that I know of, nor any precedent for an administrative inquiry into the fitness <coughs> of a person to be a minister based on something they did when they were a minor. Um, it seems to me to be reasonably seen as an attack on the rule of law or undermining of the rule of law. Attack is probably too strong a word. Uh, but I know that there are people who I respect thoroughly who say that that is an absurd proposition. Mm. Um, and I don't know how to reconcile those two viewpoints. Mm. I think that um, what we're talking about is a problem that is probably best dealt with by people who are not lawyers. That's where I land because we're talking about the mental health of people, we're talking about the psychology of people, we're talking about how to keep our community good and help survivors get on with their lives. And we lawyers are really only good about talk, are really only good at talking about how to punish people, and we're not to punish them. And if we can't, if we're not going to, the, the the standard for punishing people is the criminal standard, to my mind. And if it's not that, it's nothing, and the rest should be dealt elsewhere. Mm. What one about the, the one of the um, points that Christian Porter made when he responded to this allegation was that um, really um, it's an allegation that was aired anyone could be the subject of an allegation. Yeah. Um, I think when this story was originally published, it was, um, it was published on the basis that this dossier had gone to the Prime Minister. Um, do you think that we're in an environment with the, the Me Too movement and um, the focus at the moment on, um, on the parliamentary culture, do you think we are in an environment where anyone could be the subject of an allegation and there's now, now perhaps a lower bar for 
um, raising allegations and for the media to report them? I mean, I, I think that the Me Too movement has been fantastic and it's been such a good way to air things. And I don't... I hesitate to draw a link between the possibility of false accusations and the Me Too movement. I think the possibility of false accusations has always been there. We've all acted for the odd innocent client. Um, there's, you know, that's always been the case. I think that what there needs to be and what the Me Too movement has so helpfully done is bring to the fore the need to discuss how to deal with believing people and assisting them with the trauma that they've gone through. Yeah, I guess I, I'm, I'm not necessarily talking about false accusations, but just um, the the, um, the the fact that they are raised. I mean, I think if you maybe had have had this situation arise some um, 10 years ago, this allegation would never have seen the light of day. Um, do you think it's a positive thing that these allegations are being brought forth? Um, or do you think there should have been a, a sort of um, process of, um, you know, thinking about before something like this was published, for instance, from a media point of view, that um, it can never be disproven by Christian Porter and it places, you know, it, it, it opens up this can of worms for which there's no real resolution? So, that, so that, that's where I that, I... that I think is the million dollar question, which is what do we do with matters that fall into that category and I think there needs to be a societal or governmental approach to those matters. I have no idea what it looks like. I think it should involve as few lawyers as possible um, and I think we should have a really big discussion about it. I mean I, I mean I think it's also important to note that some of the principles of our legal system particularly in respect to defamation law are still there and are the reason I think largely the reason why we didn't have a Me Too movement in the same way that occurred in the States, for example. And, you know, there's obviously been reporting of the Porter allegation and it was ultimately him who sort of brought it into the mainstream media. But I don't see sort of necessarily a lot changing in terms of, in the short term, the strictures of defamation law and so forth. But I think all of this and these sort of fluctuations in the public mood and debate might down the track, say in the medium term, term lead to um, a relaxation of defamation law and so forth mm. because I think there is a recognition of the public interest in these matters being discussed. Yeah, well, one of but the... it's important to protect people too because as, as he said himself you know, to the journalist, and I thought this was quite a sort of striking moment, just imagine for a moment that I'm innocent and if you do that psychological sort of process, um, it's hard not to feel for the guy. There's also the issue of the right to legal representation. This is something that arose um, with the controversy around Annette Kimmett at um, Minter Ellison. Um, what do you make of the fact that she lost her job over that, that email that she sent Flick? Yeah, look, I was, I was quite surprised that, I, and I think this is right, she's the managing partner, but she's not a legal practitioner. She was the CEO, maybe. And managing CEO partner, I think. No. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, I think that's correct. She mm. was the CEO and managing CEO. partner. Yeah, yeah but yeah. not a legal practitioner, which that just struck me as quite unusual to have kind of a big law firm which Apparently, operates... I was reading in um, an article about this yesterday that uh, it's actually not unusual. That's been the case for quite some time at Minters. Mm. Mm. So she sent an email to the staff basically being, it seems, critical of the fact that the firm had been acting for Porter or advising Porter. Mm. 
and then she seems to have lost her job maybe as a consequence of that. Yeah, yeah. and I think yeah. her argument was it didn't go through the normal processes um, which, it, which it would in taking on clients. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's no cab rank rule, right, for solicitors, so there's not an ethical obligation to act for him just because he walks in the door, but I would have thought one of the very important values of the legal system is access. So to prejudice, you know, someone in the firm or someone more generally for acting for a particular individual, that to me seems contrary to a value that at least underpins the rule of law if it's not part of it. So where do you think we go, just to, to wrap up um, now, where, 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 where does this whole issue go from here, Flick? Oh, look, I think it's going to continue to play out in this public forum of the media, but I... I don't think it's going to land in some kind of administrative inquiry, ultimately. So it'll just be a bit of a gaping wound that continues on as a political question for the Prime Minister. And there's talk of the Electoral Commission abolishing his seat as well in a review about to be released. So that could short-circuit things. All right, well, I think um, that brings the discussion to an end and we need to wrap up. So um, thank you so much um, for tuning in today. Thanks, of course, to the Wigs for another great deep dive into some really interesting legal issues. Um, you can follow the Wigs on Facebook at the Wigs Podcast or on Twitter. Um, and don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the Wigs wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Thanks again to Natasha Robinson from the Australian newspaper for filling in as host on this episode. Obviously, no fun things, uh, but who knows, maybe double the fun things next episode. We'll see how we go. Either way, you take care, legal wonks. The Wigs will return very shortly with myself as host, and we'll see you when that happens. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. Hey, it's Jim Minns here for the final time. I just want to remind you all that you can also follow us on Twitter at Weeds Podcast. And it is there that you can send us your questions and we'll answer them on the next episode. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Minns. The everyday can be pretty epic with the Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra. I can take a pic of myself signing a deal on a boat in 108 megapixels, the highest resolution camera on a smartphone. I can shoot content for my latest pitch in 8K quality. That's quite the presentation. The new Samsung S21 Ultra, made for the epic in everyday. Search Samsung Galaxy S21.